The British social anthropologist Robin Dunbar has a theory for how the world's social relationships fit together like concentric circles of intimacy. The idea, and, and it's expressed almost mathematically as something called Dunbar's number, suggests that at most people can have 150 meaningful relationships in their life. Like that, you have 150 people that your brain can sort of keep track of and understand and, you know, care about. And, and it, it's actually a little bit more complex than that. So I'll just, I'll just run you through the numbers. You know, he says we can have five loved ones, like people you love and you care intimately about. You've only got five. And who knows what that means about large families? I don't know if he really delved into that question. But blowing up from there, he says you can only have 15 good friends. Like your best friends, that's 15. And friends at large, 50. Meaningful contacts, 150. Acquaintances, you know, people you sort of know, you get 500 of them. And of the people that you can recognize as actual human individuals on sort of a regular basis, 1,500. After that, everyone else is a stranger. Dunbar's number is a heuristic, and there is some data backing it up from a neurological perspective, but it comes from, you know, evolution. It, you know, it suggests that, you know, in our ancient past, you know, we were, we were, living in small bands, family tightly related bands that would occasionally come into contact with other groups. These would be called tribes. And eventually as, you know, social uh, you know, formations got more complex, you know, anthropologist talks about sort of a hierarchy of band, tribe, chiefdom, and state. And, and although there are some problems with that conception, we're going to go with it for right now here in this podcast because it's, it's a useful heuristic. And, and the idea is, is that when you go from band to tribe to chiefdom to state, those groupings get larger and more distant. The band is the closest. That's like your, your group of, of close friends, those 15 good friends uh, who hunt together and gather resources. Uh, and it blows up into the tribe, which is where bands sort of collect together. The chiefdom actually has some sort of governing structure, some sort of formal, maybe elected, maybe, um, maybe it comes down through heredity, but there's some sort of more representative thing. And then we get to state which is where all of those different chiefdoms sort of represent uh, one coherent individual in a person's brain. And that's how human society, according to Robin Dunbar in this sort of anthropological theory, gets organized. And I think there's something attractive about this idea. Because if I look around in, in my own life, you know, I have, you know, in that, that very close loved ones, it's a pretty small number of people who I really care, like really, but everything about them. And then, you know, good friends, yeah, 15 doesn't sound, you know, 
wrong to me. You know, I can probably think of 15 good people who I keep on touch on a regular basis outside of like social media. Like I'm actually calling them. I'm, I'm actually, you know, inquiring about details that are, that are real. And then there's the friends, 50, yeah. Yeah, okay, that makes some sense. And, and onwards and upwards, the reality is, is that individuals, humans, are sort of a narrow uh, node. It, we're sort of a, a narrow band of connections. But now here's the thing. In the modern world, it's different, right? In the modern world, there's something called social media, which has blown this whole idea on its head. If you look at Facebook, when I used Facebook, I'm not really on Facebook anymore, but I think I had like 1,500 friends, but they weren't really friends, right? I mean, these were people like, maybe I went to elementary school with them, or I met them at a party once and we had a cool conversation, but keeping track of them for all time, you know, you know, oh, we, we talked about your skydiving experience. This is a real person that's in my brain right now, but we talked about your skydiving experience. And it was a cool conversation, but I'm following them 15 years later on Facebook and I have no idea why. I mean, it's, it's a little weird, right? And I think according to Dunbar's number, it might be worse than weird. It might actually be inhuman to have this. You know, one of the beautiful things about the human brain, one of the fundamental functions of, of human consciousness is actually forgetting details that are irrelevant to your life. It's like, what, you know, when we sleep, and you know, I've done other podcasts and I'm doing some research on sleep right now, but when you sleep, the thing that your brain does is discard the information that is no longer serves you and sort of like combines it down and compresses or just completely forgets it. And that is a really, really important part of consciousness to keep your brain uncluttered. But here in the social media world, oh my God, it's nothing but clutter. It's nothing but these, these connections that, you know, although there are some real meaningful contacts in your social media profile, I would hope, but it's a lot of these other contacts. You're like, well, why, why am I connecting with that person? Like, why do I care about this parachuter that I met 15, 20 years ago? Well, I'm, I don't know why we do that, but we do feel like we want to connect our past to our present and, and these profiles to some degree create some sort of historical record for us, a way to, to externalize our relationships and remember them. And we think, of course, that the more friends and now if you, we look at other platforms, more followers you have, right? The more people who follow you, well, the better you are. I mean, you can look at somebody who is, is well known and they have a, you know, 20,000, a million followers and, and, and something in our brains clicks over and says, well, that person is important because people follow that node. They, that person is, is famous because they have people who follow them. And of course, they don't follow nearly as many people as um, as they have following them. I mean, it, 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 it's sort of uncool in the social media world to follow a lot of people. You want to collect the people underneath you to have your own little chiefdom that looks to what you say as important. 
You want people who follow you to, to have clicked you up into that meaningful contact from the acquaintance section of Dunbar's number. You want to be important because you're famous. Well, that's what this podcast is actually about. Not really just talking about the perils of social media, although that certainly is going to play a role here. But I want to look at fame. I want to look at fame as what it does to a human individual, how it changes a person. And I'm going to give you my thesis right now. It's that fame is a mental illness. Fame changes a person. It mixes up those Dunbar numbers and gives it an inflated idea of importance. It's isolating. And more importantly, it's damaging. And we live in a world now where fame gets traded on multiple levels. Yeah, sure, we might have some movie stars here and there, the Brad Pitts and the Taylor Swifts. But also, we have all these people who are micro-famous, right? People with hundreds of thousands of followers who act as if they're famous. They act for the adulation and whatever it is that social media platforms are offering in terms of like a dopamine hit, or maybe in some cases, not just neurological, it's actual finances. What does that do to an individual and what does it do to the society at large. When we scale up all of these micro-famous people who are everywhere, who we follow, who I follow, right? I follow a lot of people who I think are interesting. What does that do to the social fabric of the world we live in? To some degree, you could look at the general drift of social media, and I don't really care what platform we're talking about, but you can look at social media as a sort of casino or a Ponzi scheme. You know, when, you know, the years ago, it was a really common news story to have like, you know, like a 14-year-old kid who did a funny dance or had like a, a particularly attractive, um, you know, video on some platform or a photo that went viral, right? And virality was like, a, it was a new idea and people wanted to go viral because it was, we all had the ability as just sort of any person with a social media profile or a website could suddenly get accessed by everyone on the internet when they share it between each other and we all wanted to find a way to go viral. I mean, not all of us, but many of us wanted to find a way to go viral. You know, how many of you, when TikTok came out, and this was like a couple, a few years ago, right? TikTok came out and we, we maybe you saw some news, maybe you weren't an early adopter, but you saw these news stories of people getting millions of views on TikTok. You know, they were nobodies and they got, they, they blew up on TikTok. And did you, you know, perhaps start a TikTok account and maybe part of your brain thought, well, look, these things are getting, these dances or whatever is getting popular or my particular way of talking is gonna get popular and that just maybe it'd get picked up and it would go huge and like suddenly everyone would be looking at me doing this thing, whatever social value that thing was and then maybe you would try to copy other people and you know what? 
most of us didn't go viral. Like most of us, you know, couldn't do that dance. What am I? I'm thinking about the floss, right? You couldn't floss your way to fame. Maybe the first two people could floss their way to fame. That's that's a stupid dance that actually I got pretty good at. Um, the floss didn't make you famous, but you, what you were doing is you were pulling this slot machine and hoping that things would go crazy. And if you look at, you know, it's not just TikTok, right? If you look at any you know, social media service. One of the most popular genres on YouTube is how to hack the algorithm, how to craft the perfect thumbnail in the first 30 seconds of your YouTube video so that, you know, people, you will retain people, you you get your click-through rate and your audience retention, and that if you get your numbers just right, maybe the algorithm, which is treated like a god almost, it's sort of a whimsical god that you can't possibly understand that algorithm will pick you up and transform your video from getting the hundreds that it might get into the millions and then you know those millions can translate into money for those of you who are wondering a million hits on youtube should generate about four thousand dollars roughly forty five hundred dollars or so and then once you go viral once, you're, you're going to want to go viral again. You're want going to get those followers. You're going to want to try to build a following. And then all of a sudden, there's this funnel that you're in, that you're, and you're traveling down this fame funnel with millions of other people all trying to get that one little slice of attention from the, the broader world so that you can climb Dunbar's number into being a loved one for millions of people. Yeah, society, it's a little sick. And we're gonna talk a little bit about social media fame, of course, because it is something that hits all of us. But I think to truly understand it, we also need to know what happens to the mental states of people who actually have grabbed that brass ring, who have actually achieved this um, place of universal loved recognition, what happens to their brains and what happens to them as people? Well, luckily, there's a fair amount of research that has been done on celebrity over the years. And while I don't talk about this all that much, uh, back in the day when I was getting my PhD in anthropology. Uh, my research focus was actually on how fame got constructed in India among Bollywood film producers and film stars. And I actually went really deep down the fame research rabbit hole, uh, which it's fortunate that I didn't actually finish my PhD, but it has been a topic that has fascinated me for a long time. But before we get into the research on fame and the, the damage it can do to mental health, um, this is the time in the show where I tell you that I don't have ads. You've noticed if you're listening to the audio version on Spotify or Apple that I don't actually run advertisements uh, because I like to be able to just, it's to be me and you here. And, and there's two things that I, that I want to suggest to you to help support this show and keep it ad-free. The first is that, well, I have a Patreon. Uh, it, is a, it is a way that, that, I, that 
that people who are fascinated by what I do and want to keep this going, uh, super supporters can come out and help make this podcast survive. Uh, and I'd love you to go check it out. There's a link down there in the show notes and you get access to early information and sort of half done episodes and a community of people who are really interested in these topics that I'm looking at. And you also get to suggest things that I might do. So if you're interested in keeping this show alive, go check out Patreon. At least, at least give it a look. But if you happen to not be someone who loves, um, you know, sub you have enough subscriptions already, I get it. I get it. But there's still something else that you can do, uh, which is I ask you to go leave a five-star review on whatever platform accepts five-star reviews. I don't think Spotify does, but I think maybe Apple and other podcast platforms, you can actually write a review and put some stars down. And in trade, in trade, what I do is I read your reviews here on the show. And so without further ado, I have a new review in and I'm going to read it to you right now. Hugo, G.A. Hugo, chocolate for curious ears. I came across Scott on YouTube and have been binge listening. I'll probably buy some books soon. This is the kind of writing and topics that can keep me interested for hours on end. Brilliantly presented, reminds me of the classic years of Radiolab. Maybe we'll be treated to some great interviews too. Dude, what a great review. That's like, you compared me to like the best podcast in the country. Uh, Hugo, you're, you're awesome. Um, I think I got to go re-listen to some of those early years of Radiolab. I know some of the guys over there. So, you know, Soren Wheeler, if you're listening, hey, man, how you doing? If you want your own review to be read here on the podcast, it helps people to find this show. If you go there and put a review and write something, you make it funny, make it interesting, make it something that people want to listen to. Because as you know, the show that we're talking about right now is about fame. And this is your chance to be famous. I think the most important thing to remember about fame is that it is narrowing. Like you can only be famous for so many things. And you know, we've seen this in like Hollywood, right? Where people get typecast. Someone gets a role, maybe they're the nerdy scientist guy or the, you know, the hot lady or whatever. And then they get cast in that role over and over again and they can't break free of it. And I think in general, this is what happens to fame because remember, humans can only listen and pay attention to a certain number of people, which also means a certain number of characteristics. So you get fame. When the experience of getting famous is an experience of narrowing your own sense of self, at least in the public sphere. There's this psychiatrist, maybe she's a psychologist. Her name's Donna Rockwell. She wrote this book called Being a Celebrity, The Phenomenology of Fame. And to just read a little bit of it, um, here's one thing that she says. The person, the famous person, develops a kind of character splitting between the celebrity self and the authentic self as a survival technique in the hyperkinetic and heady atmosphere associated with celebrity life. Which is to say, when you're super famous, people look at you and they respond to the fame first. You know, there's this idea of being starstruck. 
I've met, you know, quite a few celebrities over the years. And, and I can attest at some times, like, you meet them and you feel like you already know somebody. Like, you know, I'm sitting in a sauna with Orlando Bloom and I know all about Legolas, right? I know all about something about, I heard about him, you know, on a, on a, stand up paddleboard naked with Katy Perry and I feel like I know something about him and I can see in his face this conflict between who he wants to be, who he feels that he is and the way that people already feel they know him, what we call a parasocial relationship. And when you meet someone like that, you can see the conflict raging over their minds because they they don't want to be friends with you because you think they're famous because that is inauthentic. And yet they do not under any circumstances want to lose this thing that they worked so hard to attain. They cannot trust the people around them anymore. As Donna Rockwell writes, while the celebrity experiences many side effects of fame, the allure of wealth, access, preferential treatment, public adoration, and as one celebrity put it, quote, membership in an exclusive club, keeps the famous person stuck in their perpetual need to keep their fame machine churning. And she goes on to write, the unfortunate truth, however, is that for each and every celebrity, the fame machine can only churn for so long. As a former famous child star revealed, I've been addicted to almost every substance known to man at one point or another, and the most addicting of all is fame. And I really thought that was so useful because, you know, how many famous people do we know out there who have addiction problems? It's almost like a cliche, right? It's almost like, oh, that, you know, Kurt Cobain did heroin, right? You know, and David Duchovny was a sex addict and on and on and on and on. There's so many famous people who get caught up in these negative uh, feedback loops. It's like their dopamine receptors just had to have more all the time. And when the fame was not answering, when they weren't getting their equivalent of clicks and likes and newspaper articles and entrance to their private clubs, they needed to find something else. There's this neuroscientist that I've written about a few times. You've definitely heard his name. His name's Andrew Huberman. Uh, and I've been friends with him for, you know, well, actually since before he was famous. And there's probably a story to tell there sometime too, but I, I've known him for a long time. And one of the things that he said to me, which I thought was so unbelievably brilliant, was that addiction is the progressive narrowing of the things that give you pleasure. And what could be more pleasurable than the adulation of a community? When Dunbar's number works in your favor and you are closer to that loved one section for millions of people and yet you don't have to give anything back. You just get to take it. That is what fame actually is as an experience. It's the receiving of this adulation without having to give it back. But what is a person who doesn't give back? 
when you meet them, right? When, when I meet a famous person, like I always have this idea of how, who they are and they always let me down because no one can be that image that they present on their movie screen, right? The Rock is not actually out there saving the world every day. He's an actor. He was a big buff actor. Tom Hanks, who is like America's dad, is, you know, maybe a nice guy in person, but he, and I've heard that he is, but he's not the nice guy in person that you think he is. It's, they're, they're, they're struggling with this act. And they're, they're struggling with that celebrity self versus the famous self. You are a bifurcated individual. Now, I happen to know a fair number of people who have gotten famous. And, and I happen to have known them since before they were famous. And I will say that there's always this thing that occurs when you see someone go through that transition. You know, you, you meet them when they're like a normal person struggling doing all the normal person things and then, you know, they give a book that explodes or, you know, something actually, do, they do win the YouTube lottery or whatever it is. And when that occurs, it sort of hits them like a train wreck. It, uh, it, 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 it forces into them, all of a sudden they're vaulted into this club of people who suddenly want to talk to them. Other famous people who before you would have been starstruck by, but they all want to be around that proximity to fame because fame acts like an echo chamber and elevates people. And your old friends, the people that you used to know, well, they're, they're just not as, I mean, they don't carry as much punch as your new friends and, and you want to shed or maybe you don't think that you're the type of person who would want to shed their old friends, but they basically all do. I think I know I've known probably four people, um, you know, from my college years, and and you know, just sort of having met them earlier in their careers. Probably four, maybe five people who've who've made it into the general pop culture medium, like who are who were friends, and now, well, they're too famous for you. Or that if you call them, you feel like they're going to think you want something from them, right? Now, it's like, oh, you know, you were, you know, my buddy in college. And if I call you up, the first thought that you are going to have is that you want to use my fame to your advantage and I don't want to be used. And you, they start feeling protective. And, you know, maybe to some degree, I do reach out them to them knowing that it's fame. And it, it, it just gets weird. It's hard to be authentic when you have a public persona, which is so overpowering. And, and to some degree, fame also operates as almost a religious experience. It has the same strange uh, effect on a human personality that guruification also has, which, I mean, I guess being a guru or religious leader is a type of fame. But, you know, I've written books, you know, like, like my book, The Enlightenment Trap, where the peril of a guru is that when they think that they're enlightened or they say that they're enlightened and people believe that they're enlightened, they don't have any peers because no one else is enlightened about them. And they just start looking inwards and they think, oh, my God, you know, most gurus do this thing. They're, if they're men, they're like, oh, my God, my penis knows the answer to things. And I'm going to sleep with all my best and prettiest students. And that's what they that's what they do. That is just the pattern. I did a podcast called The Monk Who Fucks Everything, a brief history of print capital from ancient Tibet to the modern world. And you should go check out how that particular 
idea, um, you know, keeps on repeating itself for thousands of years, this isolation from religious leaders. But it, it works the same for these isolated, famous people. You know, they think to some degree that they deserve the fame. You know, they work hard or they got lucky or, you know, there's so much adulation around them that they feel like they, they earned this. And, you know, to some degree, some people are very talented and they do awesome things and, and, and they give a lot back to the world. I'm not going to, you know, say that people's talents don't exist. They, they, people are very talented. You know, many famous people are very talented. I mean, some are just incidental. But some, are, I mean, many are very, very talented. But it plays into this, you know, sort of a long-term American idea. I don't know if you've heard about the prosperity gospel. Uh, it's this... You know, it comes from, I think, Calvinism, which is, and, and, and has been iterated upon in various Protestant movements. But it's the idea that if you are wealthy, if you are um, someone of importance, it is because God shines his light on you. It is an indication that you are going to heaven. So that worldly goods, worldliness, is a reflection of spirituality. And I think there's an element of that with all famous people. You know, maybe they, they, they feel like, you know, personally they feel like, oh, I don't know, I've got problems. I'm addicted to drugs. I'm addicted to sex. I'm addicted to money. And maybe they even realize that. But all the world is pushing them up on this pedestal and they can't get off it because they love it so much. And they think that, God's favor. I mean, to some degree, it's God's favor raining down on them. But, you know, there is also some interesting research about fame and how terribly unhealthy it is. I mean, there's this this thing that, uh, you know, we, we maybe heard this number, what is it, 33 or 20, it's 27, right? If someone hits 27 years old, that's where, you know, uh, Jim Morrison and Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, maybe Amy Winehouse, they all died at 27. These people were at the top of everything. Why were they dying at that point in their life? Like why, what was it about 27 uh, that, that tipped them over into a suicidal thing, a, a, a spiral into addiction and, and ultimately the collapse of their health. Well, there's some interesting research uh, that I found on the internet by a woman, a professor of uh, psychology and music at the University of Sydney named D Diana Theodora Kenny. Uh, the article's name is uh, Stairway to Hell, Life and Death in the Pop Music Industry. It's on a, a website called uh, The Conversation, Academic Rigor and Journalistic Flair. You know, interesting website. Starts off with a picture of Amy Winehouse. But the cool thing about this article is, is the author um, collected the average Center for Disease Control Prevention uh, uh, average life expectancy and compared it uh, between the average U.S. female and the average female pop musician and found that fame decreases your life, a famous person's life expectancy by 25 years. 
by 25 years. If you're famous, it's going to kill you. Like it's worse than smoking, it's worse than cancer. Like you get famous and you are on that stair, that, that your life expectancy has plummeted, just plummeted. The, the, the causes are by accident, suicide, and homicide. Accidental death rates were five and 10 times greater than the national average. Suicide rates up to seven times greater and homicide eight times greater than the average person in the US population. And you wouldn't think that would be the case, right? Especially suicide, or let's take it suicide for a second. The, the goal was to be famous, right? The goal of you know being a pop star was to have a lot of people listen to your music and then these people get achieve, they achieve the brass ring and it kills them. And we as a society love them for it, right? We love them for it. We have, we have the picture. I had, I had a Jimi Hendrix poster on my college dorm room wall. Uh, you know, I think my wife had a Kurt Cobain poster on her wall. And we love these people who are tortured and broken and we hold them up as idols almost, I mean, if I was an anthropologist from a foreign planet landing in an American college and looking at the average dorm room wall or the average fan culture, I would be like, wow, these are gods. You've created these people gods. And yet, yet as people, as people, it is a travesty. It is like they're being hit by a train. Uh, Donna Rockwall, the, uh, the, uh, a PhD that I had mentioned uh, earlier, uh, said that fame comes on like an acute sickness. Like you go from being a normal person to all of a sudden, the way it works in our networks, you know, people can vaunt from like sort of a nobody into a mega huge somebody seemingly almost overnight. Like it's, it's very rarely a slow build. In fact, the people who do have a slow build are probably able to manage it a little bit better right? You know, if you're, if you're like a musician and you're just doing like, you know, coffee nights, you know, open mics, and then you make it up to the little like slightly bigger stage, but you stay there for a few years and you slowly um, are able to integrate what happens in your famous rise, you might actually be a little bit better off than the person who goes virals on the Today Show tomorrow and the next day is filling stadiums like Madison Square Garden. Those people have real mental health issues. And if you think about it from a neurotransmitter idea, from the node of the individual, they're getting flooded with dopamine. Just so much adulation, so many people just loving what they're doing and, it, and, and their brains get completely flooded. And then when, that, when it, it just backs off a little bit, it's like there's, it's like when you get off an SSRI, your, your, your levels just plummet, you get worn out. Fame is freaking dangerous. Now, if you've been following my work for a little while, you, you maybe come across my book, The Wedge, where I sort of fill, where I wax philosophical on the nature of consciousness. And one of the things that I want to just push on a little bit more here is that when I talk about consciousness, I don't like to conceive of consciousness as it sits within the bodies of humans. 
which is, you know, just go with me here for a second. You're, you're, it's not going to feel right when I say this to you. But I don't think that I am conscious, and I don't think you are conscious. Uh, I don't think any of us on an individual level are conscious. But in fact, consciousness is something that arises in the synapses between people and in social interactions. It, consciousness exists between neurons as they fire. It is something that, that uh, occurs uh, constantly and continually, but doesn't exist in one place. I've done other podcasts that, you know, sort of delve into this sort of synaptic idea of consciousness, you know, a lot more in depth than I will now. But let's look at just fame from this perspective uh, for a second. You know, if fame is a node of consciousness, right? You know, this this fame is really a social construct. It happens because of the collective action and adulation that gets piled on a specific individual. And if they were like a neuron, they were just like a really important neuron because lots of connections are flowing into this one spot. But neurons don't work really well when one neuron sort of wags that whole dog, right? You know, neurons can only fire so much out of their network at one, at one time. You know, a, a famous person only has so much energy to contribute to the broader network of, of human civilization. And, and it is a narrowing effect. It is an inefficient effect. If one neuron is like the command point for conscious expression, it lacks the ability to have sort of diverse interactions and diverse thoughts and sort of a full experience. And and that narrowing is, well, it's hard to live and experience and, and, and exist with the weight of that responsibility on the neuron. That, that neuron doesn't, um, it can't fulfill an integrated self. In the end, the synapse around the neuron defines what it is. And so I want to just sit with that for a second and think about what it is that we're doing here in the world today with social media. Hell, what I'm doing with a podcast, what I'm doing with a YouTube channel, and you know, I have all of my little Instagrams and Twitters and Blue Skies and Mastodons and all of that crap. What is it that we're, we are chasing here? Is it going to actually give us fulfillment? And I, I struggle with this because I'm, I'm, I'm playing that game and you're to some degree likely playing that game too. We're all on these platforms that give us something in return, right? We, you know, because, you know, sorry, I have segued into looking at social media again here, um, you know, I have defined what the problem with sort of big celebrity is in terms of isolation. And I want to bring this back down to our personal level and, and this micro fame thing that we're all part of, right? We're all part of it. You know, I asked you for like reviews, like a, like a little while ago on this podcast, right? I said, Hey, you'd like and review my thing because I do want my message to spread. Cause I think that there's some of, hopefully some of what I say is useful, but I'm also like really wary about what that fame actually might mean if this podcast blows up into sort of a, a huge world. I, I find myself drawn between two polarities where I can be an authentic individual or I can be something that tries to wag 
the dog from outside something that tries to answer what you know what you know what podcast title might give me the best uh, click-through ratio to um, forge a career so that I can afford health insurance every month like that like these are these are I mean those are thoughts that I have sometimes and it's it is a struggle and I think it's a struggle that that well especially for someone in the media it's it's more apparent but it's also something that we all do right when you post something on social media you know you you you, you put your best face on Right, we we put our the the happy party that we went to, the awesome food, the 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 the, the vacation picture, and we don't show the side of ourselves, which you know honestly we exist in most of the time, the sort of groggy making it through the day, and you know mumbling to ourselves about whatever bill is on our mind, or you know whatever it is that the normal day to day experience of life. We we show the most dopamine driven side that we think people will be interested in and we think that we'll get engagement and you know maybe a small level of that is okay but i don't know maybe it's not right maybe fundamentally we are that band chiefdom tribe state biological organism maybe maybe we as people should focus on actual human connection and forget about posting the happy photo and trying to live our lives through the lens of whatever upticks and downticks that happen on the platforms where we have invested so much time. When we lie on our deathbeds, are we going to think how many likes that's going to get? Are we going to live stream our deaths in the hopes that maybe we will get a larger uh, amount of sympathy from our erstwhile fans? Like, what is it all leading to? I don't know. I don't think I'm going to live stream my death. I don't think that's, that's, that's my goal. Um, but I do wonder where it's all going. I'd love you to tell me where you think it's going. I'd love you to tell me, you know, write me an email or something, uh, sgcarney at gmail. You know, write me an email and say, you know, tell me what you think social media and this micro-fame Ponzi scheme that we live in, is there a positive spin to it, right? Is it is it is the dream of the internet, those interconnections so that I can, any one of us could have a global reach. Was it a net positive? Is it net negative? Is it good that there's now eight different Twitter platforms out there? What do you think? I obviously haven't settled. I haven't resolved the problem in my own mind. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you know how it's all going to go and what the right way to address this world is. And you know, it's funny, I do get quite a few emails from people who are not famous, right? Who are just people who are just, you know, people, peopling in their peopley lives. And I think those perspectives are maybe even more important than the perspectives of the famous people because we get the famous person's perspective all the time, right? We get, you know, the newspapers and magazines and YouTube channels, they, they, they're all star fuckers. They're all trying to get maximum engagement. But what is it that the normal human does on the day-to-day -day basis in this complex world? Are we happy? Has someone found the answer to happiness? The Buddha would have said that life 
is inherently unsatisfactory, and the pursuit of constant engagement and pleasure will ultimately fail you. So the best thing that a person can do is become introspective and understand the nature of their own minds. I think there's something to that. I think there's something there. Heck, maybe the Buddha had the answer to everything. I'm going to leave you there with that thought. Um, you know, in order to increase my own personal brand uh, reach and identity and fame, uh, please do uh, leave a like and review because I guess that is where we are at this particular moment. From Denver, Colorado, and Pokey Bear LLC, this was Scott Carney Investigates.